Greetings, podcast world, and welcome back to Bitcoin Magazine's Weekly Bits Podcast, a recap and analysis of the most impactful stories directly from the Bitcoin Magazine newsroom. As always, I'm Peter Chihuahua, Senior Editor at Bitcoin Magazine. And for this episode, I am joined by David Hollerith. You may recognize David as the host of the Bitcoin Magazine podcast interview series. He also does a lot of behind-the-scenes work for the other Let's Talk Bitcoin podcasts, including this one. And he's written for BitcoinMagazine.com and our company's print magazines for years. David, did I miss anything in that intro? No, I think that's about it. Awesome. Well, David, I've asked you to join me this week because of the awesome job you did with our current cover story. It's on the homepage right now. It's titled, Darknet Markets Can't Live With or Without Bitcoin. First of all, I was hoping you could remind me what inspired you to pursue this story in the first place. Yeah, so I think back in August, um, I talked to Isabella Begueros, who's the head executive director of the Tor Project. And before that, I didn't really know much about Tor other than that that was sort of like a browser people could use for anonymity and to access darknet markets. I, I got really interested just learning about how like Tor was created. It's a, it's a very weird thing. It was made by the in the Naval Research Lab and has this like really funky history. And so I started kind of relearning darknet markets a little bit more from that angle as opposed to uh, just sort of what you read about them, I guess, like, you know, any kind of big media publication. Um, and so I have gotten in touch with a few people who cover it regularly. And I'm trying to do a podcast series about darknet markets when we have time. But so yeah, when the news of the story came out, I just immediately jumped on it as a, a, a great opportunity to sort of like learn about how these cases work. And the news of this story being that the uh, U.S. Department of Justice announced that it took down a darknet market called Welcome to Video, or WTV, and its uh, crackdown on that market was aided by some chain analysis research that traced Bitcoin transactions back to the operator of that market. Is that a fair synopsis? Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Um, I, I guess the thing the thing about it is that uh, these investigations take like a lot of different techniques. And, you know, it's very easy for people who are pro chain analysis, like helping get rid of illicit use for Bitcoin. It's easy for people like that to sort of jump with this and say, oh, my God, they did it. But, it, you know, they ha- they assisted, I guess, more in a supporting role. They, they gave data. But then kind of beyond that, like this was the breaking news, WTV got taken down. I think that, you know, the other kind of thrust of the article is that kind of using that WTV lens, um, you're reporting that darknet markets uh, rely on Bitcoin because it's the most popular cryptocurrency that their customers want to use. But because of the Bitcoin blockchain's immutable nature, this reliance on Bitcoin, you know, actually can be the downfall of the operators if it kind of catches up to them from a regulatory standpoint. And so sort of, sort of that was the reason the headline is more general than uh, this happened to WTV thing, because I think, you know, you really do dive into that more general landscape. Yeah, I mean, there's like a lot to unpack here, but I, I guess the thing I'd start off with saying is that uh, darknet markets, every thing on tour that has like a dot onion URL is you know it's an anonymous 
marketplace. So these uh, marketplaces work heavily off of Austrian economics, which is just essentially just free market because most people don't know each other. It's interesting. There's actually like systems of trust that are built in place. Um, and you wonder like, how, how could they do that in an anonymous marketplace? But it, it's 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 kind of innovative in a way. With all that being said, um, something like Bitcoin transactions just automatically presents a way for um, these people who are doing anonymous e-commerce to be tracked in some way. And yeah, in this case, that's that's sort of what led them back to the admin for uh, Welcome to Video. It, yeah, it definitely like brings up like a larger kind of system, which is if people, people like Bitcoin is not private, so why are people using it for things that they could get busted for? And the problem is that back to the market demand, how the anonymous markets work, you know, they have to work with what the market demands. And, and Bitcoin has been the easiest way to buy and sell anything on the dark web. And Silk Road is probably what's made that sort of cemented that. So it's very difficult to change to another payment, especially something like the privacy coins like Monero that are just harder to acquire, harder to implement into like a payment system on the websites. So there's really not a lot of business drive to change to Bitcoin, even though from a transparency perspective, it could put them in jeopardy. Uh, so you have some history covering darknet markets for us and Tor. You mentioned you're wanting to work on a darknet uh, podcast series. Um, just from chatting around the office, I know it's a uh, kind of just a personal interest in your, of yours. So covering this story, is there anything kind of you learned about the darknet market landscape in general or use of Tor or something that sort of like uh, informed your general outlook on I guess that side of the internet. Yeah, um, I mean, I I think like there's like obviously uh, Snowden's leak is a big one of like people sort of paying attention to that. Snowden was a huge tour advocate, and then like if you come at this from a few other angles, like I think pretty inarguable at this point that a lot of the rest of the internet is fucked up in in how it runs, and that has a lot to do with online advertising. It might be something that's just inevitable, but these big tech tech companies are under a lot of flack, especially space, Facebook, for, you know, essentially monetizing data. That's that's how they're making so much money. And Tor, the dark web, their anonymous mar markets or an anonymous relay over the internet, that creates a huge opportunity for people to be more private as internet users. The funny side of it, too, is that, you know, there's all this criminal activity, which, like, if you take it piece by piece, some of it, you know, definitely has debate about whether or not it should be considered legal or illegal. Some of it is very much legal in other countries and then illegal in other countries if we're talking about freedom of speech and also drugs. What's interesting about this Welcome to Video case is that it brings up child pornography, which is one of those indisputable cases where, you know, I, I've never seen a logical argument for how that would actually, like, be an acceptable thing. You know, I, I know some people who are into, like, radically free markets might accept that. It's, personally, I, it's something I can't. But it comes in as a, at an interesting time just in this debate because it sort of goes back to this idea of, like, sort of like the Austrian maybe libertarian economic um, viewpoint, which is that, you know, 
we should be able to protect our rights no matter what. And then this is a scenario where rights do literally infringe on other people's rights. It's a very interesting level of complexity to add to sort of like understanding this stuff. Yeah, I think that probably goes a long way in answering uh, the next question I wanted to ask you. But it's it is that is one kind of dichotomy we talked about when you were first um, uh, thinking about writing this article. My first instinct editorially was whenever we cover dark net markets, you know, the audience seems to really be interested in those stories and the general kind of anecdotal feedback I, I get from our coverage is that Bitcoiners are pro darknet markets and, as you say, kind of Austrian and anti-censorship. But then nobody can really reasonably defend what WTV was a marketplace for. That was something I think you articulated when you were first working on this story. Like, okay, Peter, I hear that our audience likes darknet markets, but with WTV, there's no way I can put that in like a favorable light, which is really understandable. As you worked on the story, did you kind of see any kind of nuance there or did that just sort of affirm your your instinct that as much as Bitcoiners and like darknet markets are important for freedom, in this case, the DOJ did a, a good job. I think like one thing with Tor and the dark web in general is that um, like legal and illegal essentially goes out the window because everything's anonymous. So it's really just whether or not it can be traced. Depending on who you're talking to, they're obviously going to disagree with that. But I think that is the reality is it's sort of like a place that doesn't really have to deal with the same kind of legal structures on the rest of the Internet. So like when you're considering something uh, like this kind of content and whether or not it's like a good or bad thing, that's definitely, you know, obviously I think I came in and I was like, you know, this is a good thing that this was taken down. Um, but in general, it doesn't really matter because it's more of what we're doing at Bitcoin Magazine is looking at it from an economic perspective. So, you know, at any time, you might sound like you're covering the case from the point of view of the investigators or from the point of view of the hackers, in this case, the dark net market admins. Um, you kind of have to look at every angle, too, and, and sort of understand it in some way. Like um, the administrator of this website, uh, he was like a 23-year-old South Korean. And What's sort of interesting about that is that, like, if you actually consider it, like, he had more than likely zero interest in the content he was producing. He was doing this as a way to make money. And that's what these are, is opportunities for people to make money in a lot of ways, at least the people who are directly involved. It, that's, like, a really strange thing to think about, especially when you consider sort of how everything becomes a little bit less difficult to deal with from, like, a moral perspective when things are happening in an anonymous market marketplace. It's a lot easier to write things off. Yeah. And I always think back to whenever we cover, you know, the dark net, kind of think back to the godfather of the dark net and, and Bitcoin's relationship to it um, and Silk Road and Ross Albrecht. And, you know, the general sentiment I feel in the space is that Ross's sentencing was uh, much too severe, that the Silk Road was a great freedom project, important marketplace. And that kind of ties into a lot of the philosophy and ethos of Bitcoin. But just for my personal 
personal standpoint, I don't totally align with that completely positive outlook on Silk Road. Uh, so I think it's good to have a nuanced debate. I think you covered it from a very objective angle. I mean, I think you put it really well. Like, it's really not about whether we agree with it. It's not really a question of right or wrong. Bitcoin is sort of, uh, you cover it from kind of like a technology standpoint and an economic standpoint. And uh, But it can be hard to kind of avoid the morality issue, you know, even as an objective reporter, I feel like. Totally. And it, it's really fascinating, too. Like, in this space, uh, people, a lot of times when they're talking about dark net markets, they'll say, from an academic point of view or from a non-academic point of view, which, like, I, I still don't really understand what that means. Basically, an academic point of view means you're just not even bringing in, like, the question of whether or not you think it's, like, right or wrong to bear, and you're just sort of, like, analyzing it. And for, so, like, if you take that perspective from an academic point of view, like, a lot of this is so fascinating. Like, the dark web is, Ross is a great example. That's where you see a lot of, like, the innovation that shows up on the rest of the internet. You know, like, like Silk Road was basically, like, an Amazon, eBay type scenario, except it was completely anonymous. And there's so many uh, cool things that come out of that. Like, I mean, even if you just look at the point of view of discrimination, like, people can't be discriminated unless they have, like, a really bad reputation, you know? That is uh, kind of interesting. And then the other side of this, too, is that Chainalysis is sort of like, you know, they're sort of like the people who brought down this bad market. And they're a pretty controversial figure in the space, too, for the fact that, you know, they are essentially collecting data and giving it to law enforcement about cryptocurrency businesses. They basically tell law enforcement which exchanges have the information they need, and then law enforcement just subpoenas them. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. My uh, impressions just reading the article are basically any time what we cover, interview, chain analysis. Uh, not that they should be, but they're really unapologetic about, yes, we're tracking transactions. Yes, we're handing over this, you know, like forensic transaction information to lawmakers and, uh, you know, federal agencies. And like they are in no way trying to twist it towards the Bitcoin ethos of like complete freedom and this idea that, you know, we're beyond regulation or anything like that. And I frankly, you know, I think that's great for them to play that role. But it makes me think, you know, I think one thing like that the space asks for all the time is not like freedom from regulation, but proper regulation. I think I hear more often than I hear regulators should butt out. I hear like we want to work with regulators because they clearly don't understand Bitcoin, blockchain, cryptocurrency, and their regulations are kind of off base. And then, so I feel like an, a firm like Chain Analysis might be a good, you know, they're clearly very technically savvy, clearly like and I'm doing air quotes here, get it, um, as far as what a blockchain is, how Bitcoin works, what's powerful about it, what its shortcomings and flaws are. And they could be an interesting bridge, I guess, between regulators and like the actual active blockchain Bitcoin community. Yeah, definitely. What I think I'm seeing here, too, is that, you know, there used to be, I feel like a lot of talk about just blockchain technology has sort of like gone away. Um, people are much more interested in cryptocurrency, us, Bitcoin. Um, but even since that's happened, people are basically looking at um, cryptocurrency or blockchain technology in general. And they're saying either this is like a tool for freedom for the individuals, like financial freedom in some way, or it's a tool for transparency. And transparency has a lot of great benefits, but the one added thing is that it, in a lot of ways, it 
will likely result into a big uh, power consolidation to whoever can like build a blockchain or control a blockchain has the money for the data. So that could likely be a government entity or some sort of corporation. And if that something like that happens, basically all of this new tech in the space becomes the old tech that we're dealing with now that has the same kind of problems that we're seeing with like Facebook and Google. So like that's definitely interesting. But then like as a whole, if you're looking at this sector, they are a great example of a company that's doing really well. They're growing a ton. Um, You know, with all the news about China, like their services are definitely going to be used in Asia Pacific markets more. So it is kind of strange because it depends on which level you're looking at about what you take. But they're definitely a company to keep an eye on because they're the, you know, sort of the strongest authority that exists in the space or the only one that's doing it. So yeah, I think that would make a very cool Bitcoin magazine article, sort of a feature profile on chain analysis, you know, who works there, uh, what they do and what the future of if if, uh, hyper Bitcoinization, hyper blockchain society comes Mm -hmm. to fruition you know, why is chain analysis kind of, in what direction are they poised to grow? The last question I had here, I did want to dive back into the editorial process for this piece just one more time. I think one thing, not debate, but conversation we were having was, and I alluded to this earlier, is this story a WTV got shut down and here's how, kind of like breaking news story? Or is this a what does Bitcoin mean for the darknet marketplace at large kind of feature story? Obviously, if you go to the site, you can see pretty you know, straight away that we went the more feature route. But did that editorial question come into your reporting at all? Or did you go ahead and cover it sort of as that breaking WTV type story and it just sort of evolved and, and all this extra coverage just naturally like came into it? So the news that got me on the story was WTV, and that investigation was like a quick way to get into what was going on. As it evolved, though, it definitely turned out to to be more about like the darknet in general. And I think right now, just with the work I'm doing, uh, I kind of want to like look at and point at like the dark web as much as possible, just because I think it's like a really interesting place that is uh, very misunderstood and continues to be an issue on like a weekly basis. What I love about it is it's so difficult to find people who actually are experts with it so that when you do, you can weirdly kind of trust them even though you really can't know them. Yeah, I I did want to ask about that too. So in addition to interviewing a representative of Chainalysis, uh, you talked to Caleb and he's on Twitter at 5auth, A-U-T-H. Yeah. so you kind of describe him in the article as a crypto and drug market researcher, point out that not non-academic. Yeah, <laughs> very clear about that. But how did you you know find Caleb? And is there any more detail you can give about, you know, why he's an authority or how yeah, I guess how you found him in the first place or why you trust him as a source about darknet markets? So Kyle Torpy actually was the guy who turned me on to him. And I talked with Caleb. And the first time I talked to him, I interviewed him on a podcast. He was using a VPN. So his voice was like really distorted and it would like skip. And I was like, I don't know who I am talking to. And 
I, I went back to Kyle, and Kyle con- connected me to a few other people, and I started to see that these other people I was talking to who were real people, they were a lot were actually academics. They were like sociologists. Like internet sociologists is like a thing now that is like actually like pretty pretty viable, which is funny. Sociologists suddenly have like definitely a job market. Um, but so they all seem to vet Caleb and and uh, talk about him regularly. But I still don't know a ton about him. And every time I'll ask him a question that veers to like he just can't talk about, he just he won't go there. So he's a darknet source through and through. <laughs> yeah, and I would say, and I mean this totally in a positive way, almost any other serious newsroom, you know, that kind of uh, sketchiness or inability <laughs> to verify identity would be kind of some like red flags around using this person as a source. But what's really cool about our newsroom being a leader in this space, being kind of original to the space and designed for decentralized world, the Bitcoin focused and even darknet focused, you know, community is that kind of I think we value some of that stuff. And if anything, the way you described finding him actually kind of adds authority or that's not that's a source uh, we're willing to use to uh, protect his you know identity and all of that. And I think it really informs our stories a lot better than a more traditional newsroom that w- you know wouldn't be comfortable. You know, I think going that route in some cases would have a worse story as a result. So good job finding him for sure. <laughs> and like, that's really interesting. Maybe you'll have to get him on a podcast or yeah. <laughs> definitely, you know, keep him as a great source for, for these kind of stories. Yeah, he's been great. And he, he's a ton of information about it. And I, I keep asking him if he wants me to quote him on this stuff. And he's fine with it because he does a lot of tweets. He's got like way more followers than I do on Twitter. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, he, he's been great. Cool. Awesome. Well, David, thanks again for coming in, discussing that story. Listeners, you can find that on our homepage. Um, is there anything else I didn't ask about that you wanted to uh, make sure listeners knew? I guess the one thing we didn't touch on was just coin mixing or coin joins mm-hmm. is sort of like the spot, the spot in this issue of Bitcoin being uh, Bitcoin transactions being transparent or private. Coin mixing is sort of like the undecided factor. If you do it right, you will remain private or you can hide your your transaction trail. Um, And if you do it wrong, you won't. So there have been both cases of that. So yeah, coin mixing probably needs its whole own episode, to be honest. But uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. And thanks again for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me. That does it for another episode of Bitcoin Magazine's Weekly Bits Podcast, a BTC media podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. It was produced and edited by Graham Peterson and my lovely guest for today, David Hollerith. If you're interested in reading the story we discussed or others like it, check out our homepage at bitcoinmagazine.com and follow us on Twitter at Bitcoin Magazine. You can find more engaging crypto podcasts over at letstalkbitcoin.com and can follow them on Twitter at the LTB Network for all of the latest episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the show on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts and to leave us a review. Finally, I want to remind listeners about the upcoming Bitcoin 2020 conference being held in San Francisco from March 27 to 28 next year. 
It's already shaping up to be the biggest Bitcoin conference ever, and I know there's a ton more to announce. You can learn more at Bitcoin2020conference.com.